Hey everybody, we're getting back into the long-form email answers, and I apologize for anybody listening that maybe has a uh, a backlog to this. Takes a long time because uh, I've been juggling a lot, but hey, we are back to doing this regularly for emails that we've received that are a little too long for the normal show, but deserve extra attention here. And that is on me, fam. Let's go ahead and read this here from uh, Orthodox Paul Bunyan here on uh, Orthodox Representation. He has written us quite a bit here, and we are going to go ahead and read it all. Maybe a couple details omitted just for security's sake here, but hello again. As per your request, here is the long-form email about Orthodox Christianity for the non-Orthodox. Hopefully it passes some guys' uh, vibe check here. They're also Orthodox listeners. As I stated before, I'm not a highly educated man, so everything I have to say here is what I have received. I don't speak Hebrew, he says. I read very little Greek, and I accept on faith the word of authorities who I trust. So, right off the bat, let me tell you, dear listener, that's a good thing. There aren't enough Christians like you. There are so many people out there that are self-willed and decide that they personally are theologians. And you're not. You're just straightforward saying, okay, here is what I'm doing. Here is how I want to do it. And that is awesome. And you're telling us what you do know. So let's uh, let's go ahead and continue reading this then. And uh, I'll respond paragraph by paragraph. First, he says, I suppose it's best to talk about what mystery is, since at its core, Christianity is a fundamentally mystical faith. However, by this, I don't mean that whatever woo-woo feeling you may get in prayer is from God, or even spiritual at all. I felt a rather out-of-body experience when I had food poisoning, for instance, even saw visions. That was the pain medication, but you get my point. If you pick up any book about introducing the Orthodox faith, the first thing they'll talk about is the Trinity. This struck me coming into the church because in all the theology I had read prior to my days as a Reformed Baptist, the Holy Trinity was not a focal point of theological studies, or for that matter, devotional life. I thought it was like advanced theology for high minds, such as uh, R.C. Sproul, Memory Eternal, So why start with the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, as you know, it is basically impossible to philosophize your way to understanding the Trinity. There's no way to grasp the concept intellectually. However, as you also know, if you pray, you can experience the difference between the three persons. It is indescribable. It is subtle, not wrapped in visions of light or feelings of pleasure or pain or any such fantasy, but it is there. The knowledge that you're not alone in prayer, not merely the hope. This is the crux of Christian mysticism. The mystery is simply that which we don't understand, but we know from our experience. This is in direct opposition to ritual magic, which I will address more later. So right off the bat, uh, dear listener, uh, Paul Bunyan there, didn't realize the, uh, (laughs) the axe hand was an orthodox guy, but oh cool. So, let me first state, orthodoxy is not alone in starting with the Trinity. 
I mean, Lutheranism does that too. The first thing we want to teach our kids in the small catechism is the Apostles' Creed. Um, so that every kid, as Luther said, if anybody comes up to a kid in the Lutheran church and says, what kind of God do you have? He or she can respond with, well, God the Father is my creator and my provider. He gives me everything I need. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is my redeemer. He saves my soul. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is my sanctifier. He is the one who makes me holy. But I do understand the, the difference that between orthodoxy and Lutheranism is you're talking more experientially. You're talking more about getting to know God on a personal level to where you can even tell which person you're praying to by experience. And that's where Lutherans would be, would try to be pretty careful with it. But uh, continuing on the, e in the email here, the second thing I'd like to talk about is doubtlessly what's on everyone's mind. What is salvation? There are layers to this. Christ rose from the dead and the gates of Hades are torn asunder. All will rise on the last day. In that sense, all have salvation from the power of death. With that resurrection, Christ has declared those spiritual powers of death to be condemned and all who choose to follow them will meet their same fate. So only those who are on God's side in the conflict between God and the demons have salvation. This is what the apostle means when he calls Christ the savior of all, but particularly the elect. So the way you're seeing it is kind of a, there's a similar topic in Lutheranism, which is objective versus subjective justification. All of humanity is objectively justified by the atoning death and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, not everybody is saved because that's where subjective justification comes in. The receiving of what Christ has done by faith. But I can tell you're going to be going in a different direction with that. So let's uh, continue on here in the next paragraph. Our listener writes, so how do you get on God's side and what does that look like? Well, this is where theosis comes in. Another way to think about salvation is the assumption of human nature into divinity in the person of Jesus Christ. The same way Adam's transgression affected human nature for the rest of history, so Christ has elevated human nature up out of bondage to sin. Through Christ. Now mankind has the capacity to not only be truly good, conformed to the image of Christ, but to become sons of God. The term used mostly for the angelic hosts that reign over nations who are deposed in the resurrection of Christ. When St. Athanasius said, God became man that man might become God, he most certainly did not mean whatever electric Jesus guy was talking about. St. Athanasius was referring to God taking on human essence, that humanity might partake of divine energies. We cannot achieve oneness with God in, say, the Buddhist sense of oneness, where all distinction fades away and everything is the same. Rather, as St. Paul says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Theosis, then, 
is another name for the lifelong work of repentance. We turn from the old man and we turn to the new. Is salvation then a one-and-done thing? I suppose it depends on how far you want to go with it. I was saved at the cost when Christ died for me and rose again. I was saved at my baptism when I was brought into the covenant community. I am saved every day when my mind, renewed through divine energy, chooses love over vice and humility over pride, and I will be saved on Judgment Day if I uh, persevere to the end. So, my response to that is, well, when you get to the essence energy's distinction of orthodoxy, there is um, there's some danger there. And I, I don't want to slander all Orthodox believers that are all Orthodox Christians, but when you look at the essence energy's distinction, there is a problem. St. John says in 1 John that God is love. And there's and theologians since the early, early, early days of the church have made statements more or less uh, advocating the simplicity of God, the divine simplicity of our God meaning he is his attributes. God does not have parts, so to speak. That said, when you get into the essence energy's distinction as presented by orthodoxies, you have a distinction and potentially a metaphysical part to God that is separate from his essence. And if God must act in accordance with the energies, you're... Well, the, the Roman Catholic Church during the uh, Palamist controversies said this was basically advocating for a quaternity. And some would say there's even a danger of practical polyth polytheism, meaning that while the Orthodox confess there is one God, after all, they too, with the rest of historic Christianity, confess you know, the creeds, uh, um, Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, and Chalcedon. And that means being monotheist, but practically, there is a danger of functional polytheism. And I think if you're going to be an Orthodox Christian, you need to be very, very, very careful with the logical conclusions you may or may not be drawing regarding um, theosis and the energies. Now, the way you're presenting theosis, by the way, getting very, very, very close to God, seeing him as he is, and not being on an ontological parallel with God, but rather being, um, well, one of his own in the truest sense of the word, right? That idea of theosis, I, I hesitate to say it, brother, but orthodoxy's always been really vague, and I always, I always wonder if it's intentionally vague with theosis. <laughs> What you're saying is carefully worded to make sure it doesn't veer into, say, Mormon territory. And that's encouraging. That's really good to hear that you're not advocating for, well, yeah, we actually do become gods. Or we take in God's essence. Or we wouldn't say we're capital G God. We're little G gods. There have been some people in the Orthodox faith that have veered a little too close to that. In, in their language, even if maybe that's not what they meant. So there's, if anybody out there listening to this is considering orthodoxy, my honest exhortation here is, guys, be careful. You know, not to say that every orthodox person is not a Christian, but 
Lord knows on every old school map of the seas and every old school sea chart out there, there used to be things like here be sea monsters or here be dragons. And there are pitfalls with orthodoxy in a similar way that there can be pitfalls with Lutheranism. Just different pitfalls. And that has been recognized, by the way. I mean, the desert ascetics did talk about people being uh, lifted up. I forgot the exact theological term they came up with it, where you're lifted up and puffed up by your own experiences. The Lutheran church would call that enthusiasm. But in Lutheranism, we also have a huge danger of antinomianism. Uh, thank you very much, Gerhard Ferda. But anyway, enough of that. Let's go ahead and keep going on. Uh, he continues, I'm sure by this point you've mentioned that you don't care for Christus Victor theology. So let's address that. Christ's passion and resurrection is directly linked to the Passover, both in every symbol and in the fact that it took place on Passover. This is not coincidental. In the Passover, the Israelite people were delivered from slavery to the hostile gods of Egypt, chief among them being Pharaoh. They passed through the Red Sea, an image of death, and into freedom, into life. At the cross, we are delivered from the demonic spiritual powers, and their only dominion, death, is taken away. We are brought from, from bondage to sin and death into freedom. This is the major parallel drawn by the Gospels and the Epistles, not to mention the liturgical history of the church. Does this mean that it's the only way to think about the cross? No, for Christ said he came to fulfill the law, or Torah, so that means the whole Torah, not just Passover. The entire book of Hebrews, for instance, details how Christ's passion and resurrection fulfills the Day of Atonement. This brings up a problem with penal substitution, though, because the Day of Atonement was not a penal substitutionary event. The goat on whom the sins of the people were laid was not killed, but sent away. I'm aware that later on in the history of Israel, they would beat it and drive it off a cliff to make sure it stayed away, but that's innovation. The Torah only prescribes that it be sent to the wilderness for Azazel, the idea being to return the sin and its effects back to the demons whence it came. The goat offered to God would be one without blemish or spot, and would be offered for the purification of the tabernacle, the ritual items, the priesthood, and the people. This is what the Hebrew word translated atonement means, wiping away or covering. It's a cleansing rite, not a punishment rite. Christ fulfills this by being without blemish or spot, cleansing us with his blood, and bearing the sins of the people away from Jerusalem and back to the demons whence they came, Hades. The cross is a many-faceted event, the biggest event in human history. There's no one way to talk about it. There are many church fathers who use language about divine satisfaction of wrath and such. I don't have a full understanding of the cross of Christ, and parts of me, part of me doubts I ever will. The church does have areas of particular focus, though, and Passover and Atonement are these areas. I won't make the dogmatic assertion that the satisfaction of God's wrath is not involved because that language is in the Bible. But the Reformed understanding of penal substitution is not an orthodox doctrine. So, well, in, in part, I'd say you're correct. Um, 
the Orthodox Church hasn't ever come up with any specific, this is doctrine, this is not doctrine. Uh, one Orthodox friend of mine told me that the formulation of Eastern Orthodox doctrine ended at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Everything else is what do the patriarchs and the bishops agree on. But currently, yes, you, you might say that in modern orthodoxy, um, there is a, an attachment to Christus Victor. Now, regarding that and the difference between uh, Protestants and Eastern Orthodox here, is whether we're reading all of Colossians chapter 2, or at least all of this uh, current pericope here, starting in verse 6 from Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when you, you're, you're making an allusion here, A-L-L-U-I-S-I-O-N, uh, however I spell it, allusion to Colossians 2.15, when you're talking about taking away the power or the, the last armament of the devil and his minions, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, but can you read that without looking at verses 13 and 14? In verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus did not give sin to the demons. He nailed it to the cross. And it is only because of him being nailed to that cross and dying for us that we are forgiven of our trespasses. And the record of debt, what we owe God, namely death, as the punishment for breaking God's law, Jesus went through that for us. Now, I do understand that the Eastern Orthodox Church is going to have an issue with uh, some of the harder Calvinistic ways of expressing penal substitutionary atonement as though Jesus Christ took on infinite damnation times however many people have ever been born on the earth in order to pay off all of their debt. 
And I'm not exactly, I'm not exactly certain that that's exactly what happened with the cross. It's a lot of exactly's there, but it is worth saying that yes, death is a punishment for sin. Jesus went through that so that we could be forgiven and released from the demands of the law and the recorded debt incurred upon us on account of our sin. That's penal substitutionary atonement. But uh, you you brought this up on this. Uh, I think you're you're in beforeing it a little bit. Let's go ahead and read this next part. You say this brings us to the topic of judgment. The way the ancients thought about the concept of judgment is not the same way we think of it in the modern Anglosphere. The word the word deals less with meeting out punishment for crimes or rewards for good deeds, and more with restoration of proper order. The year of Jubilee is a good example of biblical judgment. On Jubilee years, debts are erased and land is returned to its ancestral owners. On Judgment Day, God will cut through the mess of human experience and set everyone in their proper place. The righteous will be in the blessed abode of Christ instead of the suffering they endured in this life. The wicked will be put in the place prepared for the devil and his angels instead of the prosperity they enjoyed in this life. Properly understood, this offers a lot more grace towards non-Orthodox Christians than we frequently see online. Um, well, even if you're correct, by the way, a lot of that restoration of order means a lot of execution. Like, it's, punishment did not originate in the modern Anglosphere. I agree with you that, yes, law and order is maintained by power of the sword. That's Romans 13. That's how we go about it, right? How humans always have. But that is the tool of restoring that order. So I, I think you're onto something there, and I'm sure the Orthodox Church understands that, yeah, the correct way that things should be is often has to be established by, well, a lot of killing or a lot of punishment. But continuing on, I think this next part is interesting to everybody. He says, this, which leads to the topic of E-Trad Orthobros. I'll arrange this section in a bulleted list because there's a few things to address here. Uh, the Orthodox Church is the true Church of Christ and you're all hellbound thrice over schismatics. This is when you see a lot, especially when the Orthobro is faced with an argument he can't answer to his own satisfaction. And we do believe that our communion is the church Christ established and the place where the fullness of Christian truth is to be found. This does not, however, mean that there are no problems. We have schismed and reunited several times through the history of the church, and we're in the middle of a messy schism right now between Russia and the Turk Bartholomew. There are clergy in various places who fail to teach the truth given to our church in ages past. There are laity who fail to uphold that truth. Where there are human beings, there are problems. As for schismatics being hellbound, ours being the true church does not necessitate any outside of our communion going to hell, just as it doesn't assure salvation to those within. That's a very post-Trent Western understanding of salvation. And he continues, I understand it like this. The Orthodox Church is the Ark of Salvation. If you enter into communion with the Church and follow her way of life, you are on board. If you are not in communion, but follow the way of life prescribed by Christ in the Scriptures, you are in the wake of the ship going the same direction. Contradictory doctrines are important.
and need to be addressed and figured out, but to judge someone among the lost is not for us. The Bible says you can't call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because I believe every word of Holy Scripture, I believe that it's by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Baptist and the Lutheran proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. The church as a whole is not quick to condemn either. I believe it was St. Isaac the Syrian who lived and served as a bishop outside of the canonical Orthodox Church. Yet he remains a saint because of the clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's work through him. Well, addressing that point, um, <laughs> to be frank with you, it would be, be pretty cool, man, if, uh, if the Orthodox Church started uh, canonizing Lutheran pastors. Just saying. That'd be cool. Um, regarding that, though, you got to be a little bit careful with, uh, with statements because I, I appreciate you're not one of these E-Trad ortho bros who sees their denomination as a sports team or as a country they have to be patriotic in a really weird way towards. Um, the way you say the Orthodox Church is the Ark of Salvation, if you enter into communion with the church and follow her way of life, you are on board. Follow her way of life. Um, I don't think I've seen official stuff from all the bishops in orthodoxy on exactly how everybody is to live. But it, it, if it happens that people are doing that by accident in Protestant or uh, Roman Catholic churches, they're okay. Uh, I worry for a lot of us then. But but I'm, I, I get what you mean by that. Anyway, continuing on, another thing from orthobros. Scholasticism is a heresy from the pit of hell. Everything Western is bad. Augustine wasn't a saint. <laughs> he continues, The greatest scholastic thinkers, I'm thinking chiefly of Aquinas, were mystics. Thomas Aquinas reported to have seen the uncreated light, or Tabor light, levitated when he prayed, and I think even saw a vision of heaven. This isn't to say that the scholastic corpus is entirely orthodox, because it's not. Aquinas is not venerated in Eastern churches, though he is, and always has been, respected. There is a lot to learn from intelligent, pious men of the West through the thousand years post-schism. If we understand God's love to be for all, not just those who are in the canonical Orthodox Church, we can accept that non-Orthodox Christian thinkers, who are indeed Christian, it bears repeating, had insight into the truth. After all, every Roman Catholic has a shared heritage with us, and every Protestant, having their spiritual heritage in Rome, also has a shared heritage with us. The Orthodox Church canonized St. Augustine of Hippo and called him a church father. That doesn't mean everything he ever wrote is in accordance with the mind of the church as a whole, but it does mean that the Etrads who anathematize him and say he was always wrong do not understand orthodoxy. There is also a tendency to react against the hyperlegal atonement theories that arose out of the Reformation and say things like the Orthodox Church doesn't believe in original sin. This is not true. I won't comment any further on the matter because I don't understand the teachings well enough to comment specifics. Suffice it to say, super is correct, and the most important sin you need to worry about as a Christian is your own personal sin. So, that's actually encouraging to hear when you say that yeah, Aquinas is respected. I respect Aquinas. If 
or at the very least, because I couldn't write a book that long that he wrote. <laughs> Goodness, I don't think I want to touch the sumo with a 10-foot pole. But, you know, there's... Augustine is also kind of an oddball case that I appreciate you mentioning that the Orthodox Church at least respects him, even though his theology flies in the faith, face of so much modern Orthodoxy today, uh, especially when it comes to matters of election, predestination, um, Augustine putting his stamp of approval on sola fide, all this stuff, it really does bear repeating, though, that he wrote probably as much as Thomas Aquinas did, which means there's a whole lot more there than just the stuff uh, various denominations don't like. Remember, Luther in here, I don't like what he had to say about icons. And continuing on in the next uh, paragraph here, it says, The Orthodox ethos. There is a tendency, fueled by the likes of mavericks like Jay Dyer and Peter Hears, to confuse polemics with spirituality. They get their hands on some terms like theosis or absolute divine simplicity and run with them. They establish themselves as teachers of the faith to the uninitiated, though they are often catechumens. I've even seen catechumens declare to the Twitterverse that they're discerning the mitered diaconate and calling themselves patriarch. I wonder if you're thinking about patriarch crime there. Jay Dyer himself has been in the church for less than five years, if my memory serves. He's not qualified to be a deacon, but he's a spiritual father to many fatherless online. His novelty in the faith shows in his behavior. There are a great many former Protestants in the Orthodox Church, and a great many of them have ministry online. They don't call people retard, though, so they don't get as much attention from the meme squad. Seraphim Rose was highly respected in the USA, but, and still is, but he is not a canonized saint for a reason. True spirituality has its foundation in humility. You can know all the theology of the church, defend Palamism with perfect eloquence, but if you have no humility or love for your neighbor, you are not orthodox. The orthodox faith is a way of life. Before the term Christian was used, the church was called the way. That way is the narrow path, the middle path. We do not presume to know everything about our God as do the Romans, nor do we descend into madness and chaos as do the Pentecostals. We know what has been revealed, we accept the mysteries as they come, and we trust in Christ, whom we believe we absolutely can and do know personally. Well, it's good to advocate for humility. Uh, fun fact, by the way, when Jay Dyer was out there, uh, one of the, he challenged a Lutheran lawyer to a debate, and the Lutheran lawyer said, all right, well, here are my terms. If you want to debate me, here's the terms. I want it this way. You, you get 15 minutes. I get 15 minutes. Response, response, conclusion, conclusion, and we can have it that way. Nice and ordered. And Jay Dyer immediately called him like all sorts of nasty names and a coward and an idiot and blah, 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 blah. So I emailed him. I said, hi, I'm a friendly Lutheran pastor that, you know, I don't think we need terms. We could just have a, a good conversation with each other. How's that sound? It has been three years and Jay Dyer has never gotten back to me on that. Like, I, don't, I think he just wasn't expecting someone to just go, yeah, let's just, let's just chat for a while. Sounds great. But, uh, hey, Jay Dyer, if you're listening, or if people want to hear a conversation between Jay Dyer and yours truly, please, that sounds like a lot of fun. 
but uh, yeah, I agree that humility is a good thing. And I think every Christian ought to have that kind of, look, I'm not, I don't know everything kind of attitude. Like teach thy mouth to say, I do not know. Uh, continuing on, holy tradition. I put this all the way down in this section because it comes up a lot in online discourse. I see many orthobros, myself included at one point, attack sola scriptura with fierce vigor and recycled Roman Catholic arguments. This is wrong because Roman Catholics have a different view of tradition than we do. The Roman magisterium is comprised of the books of the Bible, plus the extra-biblical doctrines that all lump together under the umbrella of tradition, established and maintained by the office of the papacy. Sola Scriptura, then, is a direct assault on papal authority from the Roman perspective. The Orthodox mind, however, uses holy tradition to mean the life of the Holy Spirit within the Church, handed down from one generation to the next. This includes scripture, liturgy, the sacraments, and doctrines, all as part of a whole. The reason we read the New Testament books in liturgy and call them scripture is because they were passed down as part of holy tradition. There's no need to fight against sola scriptura because we believe the scripture contains orthodoxy and the scriptures rightly understood and instruct the Christian in orthodox teaching and practice. Not everything in the church does, however, is holy tradition. Some are traditions in the sense of customs. Our bishops wear a vestment called a sakos. Western bishops wear a chasuble like the priests. There's nothing to fight over. The use of the new calendar in Western countries is nothing to fight over. Um, well, that brings, well, my point on that is whenever somebody says holy tradition, to us sola scriptura guys, the best thing question to ask is whose tradition? Which tradition? Orthodox tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, and amidst Roman and Orthodox tradition, which one is presented by whom within the tradition? It, it can get to some silly arguments, but I see what you're talking about here. Um, you're referring to tradition as the whole, not necessarily as hyper-defined by the Roman Catholic Church, which does continue to be a scholastics appreciator. Uh, by the way, if anybody's listening, no, you should not have a Protestant scholastic movement. Please no, oh no, any theologian telling you you need to be a Protestant scholastic is... Um, I believe greatly mistaken. But anyway, we'll, that's a topic for another day. In uh, the last of these bullet-pointed paragraphs here, our listener writes, Mysticism and Magic. People of the Silicon Age have a hard time understanding and implementing mystical ways of thought and practice. This is clear in the way a lot of people see the liturgical life of the church. The liturgy of John Chrysostom is our standard, but it's not the only liturgy that exists or has existed. The liturgies of St. James, Basil the Great, and the Mass of St. Gregory are all perfectly orthodox. St. Tacon loved the Anglican Book of Common Prayer so much, he adapted it for use in orthodox parishes. Uh, to try and confine the grace of God to a certain set of words is ritual magic. The Eucharist is not made so by the words of institution, but by God's choice to bless us thus in response to the faith of the assembled people. God gives us rites and rituals as a means for us to interact with him because this is how we were created. I don't have a full explanation for why or how ritual works, but because I believe the Bible, I believe God established worship as our means of communion with him. 
But this doesn't mean the outcome will always be the same. The Israelites tried to carry the Ark of the Covenant into an unjust battle and got owned. God is always in charge, and to approach God expecting blessing when you live an unfaithful life is foolishness. The blessing of waters at theophany or baptism doesn't work. The Eucharist doesn't work. God works in our hearts through the use of the world he created. Through the incarnation, he transfigured the world and sanctifies it for use in sanctifying us. TLDR, Christian mystical practice is oriented toward aligning oneself with Christ and his rule, whereas magic is oriented towards bending the universe and God's to our own will. I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. I mean, I like liturgy as obedience to St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, saying, be of the same mind. How do you do that without everybody expressing it? I'm sure there's Baptist churches out there where everybody is of the same mind, but if you don't express that through something like liturgy, it's going to be a lot trickier to do. And things happen in liturgy. That's good. You're right. God works his grace and his gathering of the faithful that way. But it does seem to me that worship of the liturgy, worship of the liturgy, not through the liturgy, is a problem across all denominations. I've got a lot of theological differences between me and the Eastern Orthodox, but I think everybody can establish that you are not a Christian just because you show up on Sunday. And just because you say the right words, that automatically means the magical energy called forgiveness is imputed to you in such sense that you can, you know, forget about getting drunk and banging the hooker the previous night. But um, the concluding-ish paragraph here, um, the best way, he says, to fully understand orthodoxy is to participate in orthodoxy. We believe the saints and angels are celebrating with us the divine liturgy. We believe Christ is in our midst. We believe the Spirit enlivens us to live our daily lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Christ. If you love Jesus too, then we are not enemies, despite what Twitter may have us believe. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. So, I do agree that there is uh, ecumenism from the trenches. We can get along, we can say, some of us grudgingly, that yes, the other guy from another denomination is a Christian. But a question for you, and feel free to respond here in your email, um, I've heard a lot from Eastern Orthodox believers, like, if you want to understand Orthodoxy, show up to the liturgy. Wouldn't it be good if Orthodoxy just had a big, fat, official bullet point list of this is Orthodoxy, here are our distinctives? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just, I'm... I, at one point, I remember I was on an Orthodox Discord server, just chatting with these guys, and uh, in, in the midst of being told, like, why do you guys all do the Filiankwe and stuff like that? <laughs> there are a lot of these e-trads on there. But at one point I went, okay, so what's orthodoxy? And I got, like, a bunch of different answers. And I said, so do you guys think maybe it's time for another ecumenical council for you guys to hash this out and define the faith for Western believers and for uh, people who are curious on a lot of this stuff? Like, 
I, I agree too that when we take Holy Communion, the saints and the angels are there um, in, in a sense that we can't exactly explain celebrating the Eucharist with us. We are the church militant, they are the church triumphant. That's why the altars, the altar rail is usually in a, a circular pattern. Um, or it's in a geometric pattern that feels like it's only halfway complete because on the other half are the saints and the angels, which is pretty cool, right? But um, yeah, it would be nice to have a definition so there isn't so much darn confusion here. I appreciate your email. I appreciate you taking the time on a lot of this stuff so that we can hash this stuff out and have a conversation about it. Um, but ending it, he, uh, he gave us here a list here, non-comprehensive orthodox reading list, orthodoxintro.org, ancient faith ministries, divine energy by John E. Brown, uh, B-R-A-U-N, thinking orthodox by Eugenia Constantinou, the sayings of the desert fathers, coming home by Peter E. Gilquist, the orthodox way by Calisto Soir, W-A-R-E, the Way of a Pilgrim, The Religion of the Apostles by Stephen DeYoung, God is a Man of War by Stephen DeYoung, Arise, O God by Andrew Dummick, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy by Andrew Dummick, The Bible Every Day, well, the Bible will lead you to Christ, absolutely, an Orthodox Prayer Book Every Day, Orthodox Media that's better suited for Orthodoxy than Jay Dyer, <laughs> Faith Encouraged with Father um, Barnabas Powell, uh, Father Spiridon Bailey, Trisagion Films, Father David Smith, Ancient Faith Podcasts in particular, Lord of Spirits, The Whole Council of God, Speaking the Truth in Love, and your diocese YouTube channel if they have one. So if anybody is interested in learning a little bit more, feel free. Again, I'm always going to push Lutheranism here, confessional Lutheranism specifically, but, you know, it's... It's okay to have these conversations without necessarily going at each other's throat. Although it's a lot harder to not go at somebody's throat when they're coming at me like, you're a heretic from whichever denominational persuasion. Even when the Lutheran, that happened to me this week, a uh, Lutheran account decided he was gonna go ahead and call me quote unquote Lutheran. And I took a lot of self-control not to go full attack dog on this guy. But anyway, I hope that works for you. Feel free to shoot me another email and anybody listening, feel free to shoot me an email on, you know, very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. Hopefully we can talk more about this stuff and get a good dialogue going. Amen and amen.